John chapter 10, almost halfway through the book. It's only taken us nine months. Uh, Chapter 10, it's interesting. Uh, Man added the chapter and verse markings, and that's fine. I mean, it's great to be able to reference and all, but it's really just a continuation of more of the same that began in chapter eight. Uh, Well, actually, chapter seven with the woman caught in adultery and all that. And then the next day, after the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus goes back to the, the treasury in the temple, the the court of the women, remember it's in the temple proper, uh, and he goes back and he begins to have this exchange, which is a polite way of putting conflict with the religious leaders. And this conflict has taken many shapes here. Most recently, we looked at and finished up last week, chapter nine, where he heals the man who was born blind. And knowing that no one had ever done that before, obviously we see the end from the beginning, but these people are living it out. So he heals this man who was born blind. And then the rest of it, and it's the first six verses there, uh, first seven verses actually. And at that point, you could look at, well, gee, is the chapter done? No, because Jesus has some other things in mind that he's gonna do. And what he is doing there, the reason for the rest of that chapter was he was forcing these guys to make a decision. And we're gonna see the same thing this morning. He is, you can't stay neutral when it comes to Jesus. You can't. And, and, and that's the same thing he does with people today. He upsets us sometimes. He causes us to be confronted. He causes conviction to come. And you cannot stay neutral. There is no fence. I've said that before. I'll say it again. It's so easy for us to try to rationalize the things that got away, to kind of push him off into the back corner, as believers even. And yet he wants to speak to us. He wants to have a relationship with us, not just when we pray to go down the shopping list, but to have an exchange. But we see in, in these passages where he, there are two results that happen, and we see the same thing again in the first 21 verses of chapter 10, and that's that the religious leaders, the ones who were rejecting him, the ones who were pushing back on him every step, even when it was illogical and made no sense at all. I mean, these guys come up with some goofy explanations or some goofy accusations of Jesus. But they push back and they push back. And we see that their actions end in rejection. Uh, They blaspheme. And we'll talk about that. And then the other side is they end up believing and they end up in faith. The response to that being worship. We'll talk about that too. Um, so the, verse, the, the first three sections, or the three sections that chapter 10 is broken down into is the continuation of chapter, from chapter nine in verses one through 21. And then after that, verses 22 through 39, it fast forwards about three months uh, to the Feast of Dedications. That would be like late December, early, or late November, early December. Uh, and it, that date moves around, as do many of our holidays, because of the, the Jewish lunar calendar, depending on when the full moon was. Uh, so the, the autumnal uh, equinox and the winter solstice and all of that played a part in how their, their months were ordered. So the actual Gregorian calendar day changed, but it was still the same on their calendar, if you, that makes sense. We've looked at that before, I won't go into that. So, but what this was, the Feast of Dedications, it wasn't one of the original seven feasts in Israel, but it was one that was added later. And that's because there was a guy that 
had been a ruler in Syria. His name was King Antiochus IV. And he was a, a part of the Seleucid Empire and he was one bad dude. He hated the Jews. He was a type for the Antichrist, actually. And I mean, he hated the Jews. He is the one who he actually uh, caused, he incited the Maccabean revolt in the 400 years before, between the Old Testament when Malachi prophesied and then God got really quiet, went 400 years before John the Baptist was raised up as the voice for God. The last of the Old Testament prophets was actually John the Baptist. So, but during that 400 years, things went into real decline with the nation of Israel at this point. Antiochus came to power. He actually added on to his name. Uh, he it was known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, and it, the, the word Epiphanes meant God manifest. He claimed he made himself out to be God. And so during that time, the Maccabees revolted. They recaptured the temple because uh, Epiphanes, had, he had actually committed the abomination of desolation the first time, sacrificed a pig on the altar and all that. And so the Maccabees took back that which was rightfully the Jews. And as a result, they rededicated the temple and then they had this eight-day feast that went from that time, from the Maccabean period, forward. And that's where we fast forward after verse 21 in verses 22 th to 39 is uh, Jesus comes back back into the city at the Feast of Dedications. Um, in verses 40 through 42, Jesus leaves Jerusalem altogether and he goes down to the place on the other side, the east side of the Jordan River, uh, to where John the Baptist was originally ministering. And, and we see there, we'll, when we get to that, we'll see that many people were coming to him and, and believing in him and uh, all of that. So three different sections in this one chapter, really where we start and where we'll be today is in the overflow or the continuation of the things that we saw in chapter nine, when Jesus healed the guy that was born blind, and then he has some interesting things to say uh, to the religious leaders uh, after this guy in, in verse 38, uh, Jesus had asked the man who had been born blind and had been healed at the pool of Siloam, remember? And then in verse 38, uh, he, we see this guy saying, Lord, I believe, and he worships him. He calls him Lord. He starts out calling him a man, and then he tells the Pharisees, well, he's a prophet, and now we see him being identified as Lord in this man's life as he comes to faith, as his spiritual eyes are now opened. And so in verse 39, that's where we're going to start this morning. It says, and Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may be made blind. Talked about that briefly last week as we wrapped up. Uh, we're, the reason why I'm going three verses back into chapter nine is so that we can catch the context, catch the flow. Um, we talked about that this is not just the result of judgment after the fact. When he says, for judgment, I come into the world. But it's the action or the current act of judgment enforcing the issue. Remember, that's what he is doing with these religious leaders. He's forcing the issue. He's making them make up their mind about him. And, and in doing that, uh, he's bringing people to either choose worship or blasphemy or rejection. And so... Uh, we see that both sides of that happen in this passage here in chapter 9. And it's the reason, really, why verses 8 through 41 in chapter 9 are there. Because Jesus could have just left it with healing this guy from his blindness, but he went further. Because we, remember, we looked at it. He calls this, or we call it, a living parable. 
that it was, and a parable is a truth it's, it's that you lay down alongside of, it's a story that you lie, lay down alongside of a spiritual truth. And the healing of his physical blindness was really to illustrate the fact that he wants to heal our spiritual blindness. So, uh, interesting, I looked in the dictionary, I was uh, studying this out a bit, uh, and I looked at, at the word blasphemy. And it's the act of insulting, showing contempt, and a lack of reverence for God. And so these guys were truly blasphemous in their actions. They truly were rejecting. And that's a rejecting heart. It's blasphemous towards God. The opposite of that, worship that we saw here in chapter 9, is the expression of reverence, adoration, and attributing worth. That's why the word is worship. It's worthship, if you would, that we ascribe great worth to him. Now, the interesting thing about that is people themselves, in our own sinful nature, will initiate blasphemous acts or blasphemous statements. But when we worship, it's not something that originates in me. It's a response. Yeah, it, it, it comes from me, but it's a response to him. Because when I see him as he is, when I come to worship Christ, it's a response. And, and my expression of worship is a response to the grace that he's poured out on my life. Uh, when we have our service tonight, a, a time of worship, to just push away everything else, just leave the, the world and all of the stuff that's going on in our lives, just, just push it aside for a while, for just a little while. And to come before him in an attitude of worship and, and to just let him know how much we love him, how much we value our relationship with him, and, and to simply come before our king. That's why I've called this pastor, this particular message, the servant king, because, or the shepherd king, because he is a shepherd, but he's also a king, and he is a good shepherd, and we'll look at that as we go. In John 3.21, it says, But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds, what he does, may be manifested as having been wrought in God. That's what I'm talking about when I say that our worship is a response to him, that as I come to the light, as I am spending time with him, as I am having, enjoying fellowship with God, that the things I do, that my life is shaped by that. And my response to him is that I live differently. And I encourage you, brother or sister, if you're not living differently, you should just check your heart. Ask the Lord to search your heart. It's very hard. Self-examination, honest self-examination is one of the hardest, most difficult things that we could ever do. And yet there's value in that. And the response to that truly is worship. Verse 40, and some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and they said to him, are we blind also? Now they're not asking him because they want to, an insightful answer. This is a rhetorical question. They don't care what he has to say. They've already proven that. And yet in their arrogance, in their haughtiness is, well, huh, yeah, well, are we blind also? And he essentially says, as a matter of fact, you are. In verse 41, it, it, he says, if you're blind, you'd have no sin. But now you say we see and therefore your sin remains. And I love how Jesus changes things up. So often in the Bible, we, when you're reading along, especially in the Gospels, you see where, where these guys, the religious leaders, they were the ones who, they, were, they loved the chief seats, he said, in the synagogues. And they, they loved the honor of men. And, and they loved have being noticed and being seen and all of that. And here we see these guys, the ones who were the purported leaders of Israel, going away empty, going away blind, and we see a beggar. This guy, it says in chapter 9, this guy was a poor beggar. 
that stood outside the temple courts or stood outside the temple and he actually begged to make a living because he was blind. He had no way to do anything. And so we see somebody that has no way to respond to God, no way to do anything for God, no way to, to have any status even in their society. And he goes away eternally gratified. I love how God does that. I love to see how he takes these foolish things of the world and confounds the wise, as we're told in the New Testament. He says, you claim to see and you don't. The blind man couldn't see, now he does. Interesting, the Pharisees had the answers. You know, when you see them, and, and the interchange and the interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees, they've always got an answer. The only problem was, it's the wrong answer. And we looked at it last week, this guy, the guy that had been born blind, had only one question, but it was the right question. I would rather have the right question than the wrong answer any day. And that's what we see with these guys. I mean, he said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? That's the only question this guy asks. Now, they had questioned him at length. Remember, we talked about that. Five different sessions this guy goes through, and everybody, I mean, he just wants to enjoy having vision for the first time in his life, and they won't leave him alone. He's frustrated with the religious leaders, and we'll look at that too. So Jesus now illustrates their blindness as we go into chapter 10. I'm gonna read through the first six verses, and then we'll come back and we'll unpack it a bit. Verse one, most assuredly, or right on, right on, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own uh, sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. Verse six, Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Why? Because they're blind. They literally couldn't get what he was saying. And, and so he, after he tells them this whole thing about, you know, it, if you say that you're, you see, that means you're blind. And, and if you're the blind guy saw and all that, he, he essentially goes right into demonstrating to them their own spiritual blindness. I don't know if you've spent time with somebody, perhaps an unbeliever that uh, you've spent time with and, and you, you share Christ, you share the gospel, you see their eyes kind of glaze over. It's because there's blindness in place. God is able to break through that blindness. Don't get me wrong. He is more than capable. Uh, and so, uh, again, just press through those things. He's talking about sheep and a sheepfold here. Um, <laughs> I had to gotta laugh. I, I reached out to uh, Karen and Doug yesterday. I, I was thinking... Um, you know, we're talking about shepherds, and uh, I probably don't want to get this wrong because we have a couple of shepherds in our church. Uh, they, they raise sheep for a living. And um, so, I, but I, I had some, just some honest questions. I usually research the passages that I'm teaching in, and, and uh, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to take a shortcut. I'm going to go right to the source and ask 
Karen some questions about all of this. And, and exactly what Jesus or what John is putting forth here as far as this account is exactly how things are with sheep. The first thing is sheep aren't anywhere near as dumb as a lot of people paint them out to be. They're not. Uh, they're actually not, I wouldn't call them, you know, uh, rocket scientists. <laughs> they're, they're animals. But the, they truly do know the voice of their master. They truly do respond to the one that they've gotten to know. They're very timid and, and they won't immediately take to somebody new or to a stranger like Jesus says here. The interesting thing is I've got a slide here of a sheepfold. This is an ancient sheepfold. I don't know where this one is, but it, it served the purpose of, of giving you an illustration of what happened with these guys in their culture. What they did was uh, most of the families were shepherds. Or most of the families had sheep. That was the way that they attained social status in their society. And it's how they got food and how they got <laughs> the produce, the, the wool for their clothing and all of that. I mean, the sheep were very, very important. And so when Jesus gives this illustration, he is speaking language that they would know and they would understand. And what they would do was when the shepherds, when all of the families would come home to their village at night, they would put their sheep in a communal pen. And we don't do that today but they would put their sheep in a communal pen and then they would have a man, the, 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 the doorkeeper, he would actually be the door. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but he would actually lay in the doorway so that nobody could come in or out without him knowing it and he could protect the sheep that way. The only way that somebody could get at the sheep is if they went over the wall. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And we'll, we'll talk about the meaning of the symbolism and all of this as we go along. But I wanted you to have kind of a visual idea of what he's talking about. And, and culturally, they would go and then in the morning when the families would come to gather their sheep, they would call out and their sheep would identify them. They would know who their master was and they could pull their sheep out. The other sheep would probably just back to the back of the, the, the pen. They don't, they're not gonna respond to him. And so this was an easy to understand cultural truth, but they weren't catching the spiritual significance. And that's the point I wanted to make in this. So now in, in verses one through 21, this actually breaks down again into three sections. The first six verses is the what, uh, and Jesus is, uh, well, it's the what, the why, and the how. Uh, the what in verses one through six is Jesus is gathering sheep. He's putting the Pharisees to the test as well in verse six with this illustration, this figure of speech that he uses. This, the, the next three verses, verses seven to 10 is the why. And the fact that they ask him what he's doing in all of that. And he says, I come that they may have life and that more abundantly. Salvation is an issue. It's central to these verses. And then the how, verses 11 to 21 is by him laying down his own life for the sheep. And so as we look at this, you can just, again, I just kind of like to break things down into to bite-sized nuggets so that you know, we can chew on them. And uh, that's how I see this unfolding. So back to verse one, most assuredly, uh, again, most assuredly in, in King James is verily, verily, uh, or in modern vernacular, I remember when I was in Bible college, my, the Bible, uh, the, or the, uh, the teacher I was sitting under when I was studying this is, uh, he, he would say, right on, right on. And <laughs> I thought, well, that's an interesting way to 
translate the Bible, but he's basically saying this is a very important statement that's about to follow. So when he says, most assuredly in the New King James, it's basically saying, pay attention. What I'm gonna say is important. I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. He's talking about the guys that he's dealing with. He's talking about the religious leaders. He's talking about false teachers. There's a direct application of what we see today. There is a lot of false teaching. I was talking to a woman yesterday on the phone and we were talking about so much out there that has been branded as spiritual food is really not. Uh, there's just so much junk out there. You, there's so much hype. There is so much false doctrine. There is so much play in church for the sake of playing church rather than coming in, getting grounded in Christ and simply growing in the grace and the knowledge of him, which is what his design is. These guys could care less. And yet that's what Jesus's point is here. He's talking about the false teachers. Uh, he, and basically he's saying too that there's only one way into the fold and that's him, period. Uh, the thief and the robber here is obvious. People that come in another way. People that come in with less than pure motives that climb over the wall to get to the sheep. Not a good thing. To him, the doorkeeper, or in the King James, uh, the porter, uh, opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. I love the fact that it says that he goes before them. He leads his sheep. He doesn't get behind us and muscle us. He doesn't push us around. He doesn't herd us like with a cattle prod. Uh, seen shepherds do that before and it's, sickening but he leads and and, and he's, he's saying that they follow him he knows he calls them by name and he leads them out as we follow him well what does that mean and for us i believe that the the message here is that we relinquish ourselves to his will to his revealed will as i relinquish myself to his will I am following him. I can give lip service to following him and not follow him. Or I can relinquish myself to him and to say, Lord, not my will in my life, but yours. That's what following him is about. And remember back in chapter eight, uh, in verse 47, Jesus said, he who is of God hears God's words. And therefore you don't hear because you're not of God. Again, there's that separation, that division. But he's saying that if you're of God, you're gonna hear God's word. They know his voice, Jesus says in verse four. The sheep know his voice. Well, what are you talking about, pastor? Are you talking about people hearing things? Well, you know, I wanna submit to you, if you're hearing an audible voice, come and talk to me after the service. Um, probably a dangerous thing. But truly what, it, what is intended here is that if your heart is genuine and you wanna be led, you will be led. It all comes back to the heart. 
This is, Lord, I don't want to be like that guy that James talked about, that guy that is double-minded, that has, you know, I'm self-willed, but I want your will. I kind of want to work you in, but I want my own way. And no, that's not what he wants. He wants people that are submitted to his will, that follow him, that hear his voice and follow him. And he does speak. He speaks to us by his spirit for sure through his word. He always speaks in accordance with his word. He won't tell you something that contradicts something here. He doesn't do it. And often he speaks to me through an impression. Sometimes he speaks to me through other people. Very often when I'm sitting under teaching, the Bible teaching, I, I, I hear his voice and I want to follow him. And that doesn't mean that I hear some, you know, again, uh, this isn't kooky stuff. This is very sensible spiritual discernment that he gives us. Pray for the gift of discernment. The Bible says discern the spirits, test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. And in doing so, as we apply his word to our lives, as we hear from him, you know how I, I've mentioned before, and I'll say it again, it's, folks, as you're reading your Bible, as you're spending time with him in prayer, and you have that I know that I know that I know sense come about, that's him speaking. That's him wanting to have that personal relationship. That's why I caution in your prayer life, don't just spend time going down the list. Yes, he wants our petitions. And he says, yes, you don't have because you don't ask. But he wants fellowship with us. Uh, he, he, he craves fellowship with you. And he wants us to simply come and to spend time with him. I woke up this morning. It was having a glorious time with the Lord and some concerns, some things that uh, I've been praying for. I just woke up praying and, I, and it wasn't just the petitions, but it was just saying, oh Lord, you're so good. You're so good. You just love us so much. Thank you for the privilege of, of being able to, to share your word with your people. It's, I know it's not me. And I just, just waking up to saying thank you, just praising him. Again, that attitude of worship. Interesting, in verse 3, he says that his sheep will hear his voice. In verse 4, he says the sheep will know his voice. Verse 5, they won't know the voice of strangers. Verse 16, they'll hear my voice. He says it again. In verse 27, he says, my sheep, sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. This is a central theme through John chapter 10. He's constantly talking about hearing from him, about his sheep knowing who he is, hearing his voice, understanding his will. Sometimes I think about the people that were used to pen the letters and the gospels and so on. And I think about Peter, uh, probably a really big guy. Um, open mouth and then uh, engage brain kind of a guy, which I relate to real well. Um, I think about John, the disciple who Jesus loved. I, I think about John there in the book of Revelation chapter one, when after he had gone through a whole life after Jesus had been crucified and rose from the dead and he watched him ascend up into heaven and for Jesus to appear in front of him right there. And he says, I fell at his feet as a dead man because he saw Jesus in glory, radiant glory. And I love Jesus' response. It says that he came over to me and he put his right hand on me. He said, don't be afraid, it's me. 
This is personal, folks. It's a personal relationship. I think about that with these guys, and you know, um, there was nothing uncommon about them. Yes, they were given an apostolic ministry. Yes, they had the ability to heal at will and things like that, that that faded with the end of the apostles, but they had no greater relationship with Christ than is afforded to us. Uh, Avoid looking at these guys as the big stars in the Bible. They were simple men, uneducated men, simple men, fishermen, that he tapped, called to be his own, entered into a relationship with, and that relationship manifested in some wonderful things that we get to enjoy and to study and to read. That's available to you. It's available to me. The intimacy that he desires to have with his people. Verse five, and yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers. Interesting. The blind guy, the guy had, who had been blind, is standing there still. I mean, this is the same scene. And, and he talks about, they, he, they don't know the voice of strangers. Have you thought about the, guys, the blind guy's interaction with the religious leaders? He was frustrated with those guys. He could not receive from them. They kept questioning him. They're saying, oh, we don't know where he's from, but, you know, and, and he says, well, isn't that a wonderful thing? You don't know where he's from, but he took away my blindness, you know, and, and he's just really kind of cocky with them because they, he couldn't hear the voice of strangers. But when Jesus approached him and he said, do you want to be, uh, do you want, do you believe in the son of God uh, was the question he'd asked him and he responded rightly. Uh, he heard Jesus' voice and he responded. That's how it is. We live in a world that, again, that hates God. We live in a world that rejects, that pushes back, pushes away. And he has nothing bad to offer. He offers only good things because he is a good shepherd. And yet we live in a Christ-rejecting, Christ-hating world. And I'm not using that word to overemphasize. I mean, it's true. And yet what he does with us is he does speak to us and we don't hear the voice of strangers, but we do hear his voice. Verse six, Jesus used this illustration or parable. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a parable, but, but not. But they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Greek word study briefly. Je- John uses the word paroemia instead of the word parabola. Now, parable is the word commonly used for parable. And what that means is to lay down alongside of, uh, and he would use an illustration. He'd lay an illustration down to illustrate and to bring light to a spiritual truth. And he does that a lot through the Gospels. This is a little bit different word and I think that John uses it on purpose. And and, And the things in parables can be very dissimilar. Um, the kingdom of God is like that farmer over there. And it's very dissimilar. <laughs> but we get the point by the time he's finished with the story. Well, here, what he's talking about, this is more of a similitude. And a similitude is the opposite of dissimilar. He uses similar things. So what he's saying in this case, the illustration that he's giving is he's comparing the sheepfold to the nation of Israel. Okay? He's also comparing the shepherd to Israel's true owner. All right, 
not these guys. And he's basically exposing their folly. And he's also comparing the robbers or thieves to the Jewish rulers, the guys that were rejecting everything that he had to say. They, could, they had shut their minds to him. Now, in verse 7, because it says in verse 6 that they, they didn't understand it. They couldn't figure out what he was talking about. In verse 7, he gives the definition. And he begins to go into a definition of the things that he said in the first six verses. In verse 7, then Jesus said to them again, again, <laughs> most assuredly, or pay attention, right on, right on. I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Remember, we looked at the rock wall. I am the one who lays in the doorway, who protects the true people of Israel. I am, I am the shepherd king, essentially. I am the one. Um, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. And he's poking these guys in the chest at this point. He's saying, you know what? You're thieves and robbers. You, you're, they would reject him physically. They would reject him spiritually. Israel would reject Messiah, and we know that. But the, the, the faithful remnant, the, the ones who would come, would not reject. They would embrace him. And, and he's saying, look, I'm the door. I'm the only way into the sheepfold. There is no other. You, you can't come in from the side and expect that you're coming to me. You're coming in the wrong way. There's only one direction that this goes. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and go in and out and find pasture. It's not remarkable that there's one way in my mind. I look at this and I, I marvel because it's not remarkable that there's one way. It's remarkable to me that there's any way to be saved when you think about it. He says he'll go in and out. Perfect liberty. He doesn't lock us in. Religion will lock you in. Having a list of rules to be obedient to will lock you in. Having some false shepherd giving you false information will lock you in. I was locked in for a lot of my life, the first 27 years, to a false religion. He says you'll go in and out and you'll find pasture. So you have perfect liberty. He also offers perfect sustenance. It's the third I am statement in the Gospel of John. I am the door. Uh, I want to read something that I uh, that picked up from G. Campbell Morgan. Uh, he says, these two I am's, because he says, I'm the true shepherd also, I'm the good shepherd. In a minute, we'll look at that. He says, these two I am's, the door and the good shepherd, are interlocked in a wonderful way in the light of Eastern life. I was, it was once my privilege to cross the Atlantic with Sir George Adam Smith. I shall never forget the fascination of that voyage as he talked of those Eastern lands he knew so well. One story he told me was this. He was one day traveling with a guide and he came across a shepherd and his sheep. He fell into a conversation with him. The man showed him the fold into which the sheep were led at night. It consisted of four walls with a way in. Sir George said to him, that is where they go at night? And yes, the shepherd said, and when they're in there, they're perfectly safe. 
But there's no door, said Sir George. I am the door, said the shepherd. And he was not a Christian man. He was not speaking in the language of the New Testament. He was speaking from the Arab shepherd standpoint. Sir George looked at him and said, what do you mean by the door? Uh, said the shepherd, when the light has gone and all the sheep are inside, I lie in that open space and no sheep ever goes out but across my body and no wolf ever comes in unless it, he crosses my body. I am the door. Let that illuminate these words of Jesus. I thought that was good. Verse 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Again, using, uh, unpacking the illustration he had given these people, they weren't understanding. He's saying, look, the thief has a purpose. The false teacher has a purpose. The, one, the false shepherd has a purpose, and he comes to lie, to steal, and destroy. And we know the reference that Jesus is making. He's talking about the evil one, uh, and he's talking about his minions. He's talking about people who are pushing back against the gospel of Christ. And then he contrasts that with his purpose. So I've come to, that you may have life. And not just life, not just eternal life, but have an abundant life here. Does that mean you don't go through trials? Does that mean that you don't go through stuff? Does that mean you don't get that phone call in the middle of the night or, or that thing that comes up or you don't know how you're going to make it financially or uh, this relationship is going south or whatever it is? No, it doesn't. But it means that he's there. And he, says, he never says, I'll keep you from trials, but he does promise to walk with us through them. And that's the important thing to remember. We never walk through this stuff alone. Never. But we have him. We have his guidance. We have his hand upon us to give us life and that abundantly. I love Philippians chapter four where Paul talks about the apostle Paul. He's in jail. He's chained to a Roman guard. It's the most joyful letter in the New Testament. He's filled with joy. And he says in, in Philippians 4, he says, I've learned the secret of doing well, whether I'm abased or I abound. And, and he had learned that it didn't depend on his circumstances. We go through tough circumstances, and I'm not minimizing our circumstances. They hurt. Those times of breaking, those times of trial are not fun. And yet we can, we can go to bed at night with the full assurance that he's got this. My life is in the palm of his hand. There is nothing that's going to happen to me that's outside of the realm of his control. And I can have comfort, security, and an abundant life with that truth in mind. And look out there in our culture and we see marriages failing. You see the suicide rate is skyrocketing. I was looking at statistics from uh, the Centers for Disease Control here a couple of weeks ago about that. In some states, the suicide rate is up, I think it was 38% in two years. There's horrible problems out there. Drug addiction, alcoholism, people enslaved in bondage. And he comes and he says, you know, I want to offer you a better way. I, I, I marvel sometimes. I scratch my head sometimes at, at, at why people reject I remember years ago, I was helping a big church in San Diego. They did a countywide billboard campaign and bus shelters and all that. And um, they had a big sign out outside. They were on Interstate 8. Um, 
uh, and it said, kids off drugs, marriage is healed. I uh, can't remember, there was three things he had on there. And then it said, inquire within. He had a kid come in that was totally strung out. This guy was totally enslaved to drugs. And the Holy Spirit moved in his heart and he got saved and he got on fire for the Lord and he was just a different guy. His parents actually came down to the church and screamed at the pastor for what were they doing to their son? And I thought, Lord, that's how our world thinks. There's just, there's no knowledge. There was no, no understanding of grace, no understanding of the transforming power of the gospel, and yet we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And my friend, the pastor of that church, was acting that out. He was walking that out. That doesn't mean that if you're not a pastor, you don't walk that out because he's given us that ministry to walk out in our lives. And that doesn't mean that we come against people and point out their sin. They're just being obedient to their nature. It means we come alongside and we love them because the kindness of God is what leads a man to repentance, to understand that God loves me right where I'm at. Uh, I've mentioned before, you, you don't want to try to clean the fish before you catch them. Doesn't make sense. Verse 10, the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that they may have life and that more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. This is the fourth I am statement in this gospel. And it's a, a, again, it's another prevalent theme in chapter 10. He talks about laying down his life in verses 11, 15, 17, and 18. And, and again, his purpose in this, he's looking forward to the cross. He's only six months away. By the end of this chapter, it's three or four months off. And he sees that, and, and he brings that into focus over and over again. Uh, I love the, the wording here. I'm not going to try to teach it beforehand because it's part of next week's message. But, uh, but a hireling, he who does not... Uh, who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and doesn't care about the sheep. I'm the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. It's a two-way relationship. He says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. I was looking at this, I was thinking about uh, the, the, the shepherd-sheep relationship, and it, it took me to Psalm 23, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Uh, there's not time enough, but the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is not, and, and I, I don't have a beef with people that use this at memorial services, funerals and all. I mean, it's very common there, but this is a psalm for the living. The intention was not initially a psalm for the dead. He says, the Lord's my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He's a good shepherd is what David is saying in that psalm. He's saying the same thing that supports what Jesus is saying hundreds of years later here to these religious leaders. Interesting, going down to verse six in Psalm 23, he says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Uh, I was looking at the, original wording of the language on that. And that word, the word follow is interesting. He's, Jesus says, my, my sheep follow me. 
And the language here that David uses, he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That word actually is a verb and it means to chase. So goodness and mercy chase me. They pursue me all the days of my life. Why? Because I'm a sheep and I have a good shepherd. It is about the relationship. It's about the one that knows me and knows you. It's about knowing the one that knows me and knows you. And so this is a two-way deal. Verse 15, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Somebody asked me before service, I think it was Nicholas, said, oh, the Mormon thing, yeah. Where <laughs> and I came out of, the, as you guys know, I came out of the LDS church, and and um, that's, that's the verse that they used to say, oh, that meant that the gospel was, uh, that's the, the other sheep of the other fold is the, the people of the Americas. There's absolutely no support for that statement whatsoever. No archaeological support. There's nothing. It's an empty statement that is eisegesis. Okay, good biblical scholarship is called exegesis where you allow the word to speak. Eisegesis is where I come with a preconceived idea and I want to make it say what I want to make it say. And this is, that's bad stuff when they make those kind of statements because it's, it's a perfect example of I come with a preconceived idea. I want to support the fact that Joseph had this vision. And it's not. But I'm going to go to a place in the Bible where he talks about this, where, where the Holy Spirit guided the Apostle Paul to illustrate what Jesus is talking about when he says there are other sheep that are not of this fold and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Not this separation thing. And that's in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll spend a few minutes there before we wrap up. In chapter 2, verse 11, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus. It's a church in Asia Minor. And uh, it, was, it was definitely a Gentile church, okay? He's writing to a group of Gentiles and he's encouraging them. And he says, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. A Gentile is basically anybody that's not Jewish. Keep that in mind that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Because Israel in the old covenant, the Old Testament was to be a light unto the nations. And they got pretty smug about it as we see by the religious leaders. And they really didn't have a very bright light a lot of the time because they sort of got arrogant and hung in their own stuff that they're, you know, we're God's chosen people and you're not. The Gentiles in, in the first century were referred to as dogs. So Paul is saying that the Gentiles were outside of the covenants. They were outside of God's plan and they were. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Now that middle wall of separation, if you looked at a a picture of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, we talked about it in a previous study a few months ago. There was what is called the Sorig and it was about a four foot high wall. There was the court of the Gentiles. Anybody could go under the temple mount and go up to that wall. The Sorig was a wall of separation. It was a middle wall in the middle of the court of the Gentiles that you, if you were a Gentile, you had to stop there. If you were a Jew, you could keep going. So there was a separation between Gentile and Jew, even in the temple and in the rites and the ordinances that they had there. And so he's saying that wall was broken down. Figuratively, yes. But there is no Sorig. There is no separating wall between Jew and Gentile is what his point is here having abolished in his flesh the enmity or hostility, that's what enmity means, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two. There will be one flock, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity or the hostility. The, the, the Jew and Gentile, the warring between the Jews and the Gentiles in a spiritual sense, yes, in a physical sense, that continues on today, but in a spiritual sense was abolished. It was gone. There was no longer Jew and Gentile. The, it says in another place, no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. And I'm not talking about a gender issue here. We're not going there this morning. But the point is, he says, but a new creation It wasn't about ancestral lineage anymore. It was about faith. And have you come to faith in Jesus, the Messiah? And it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile, have you come to trust him as Lord? And that's the point that Jesus is making. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about, he knew he could look down and see that he would be rejected by Israel and the gospel would go to the Gentiles. And now it didn't matter anymore what your lineage, what your heritage was. Jew or Gentile, that wall is gone. It's a new creation. And that's what Paul is talking about here. A couple of decades after Jesus went to the cross, probably 30, 35 years after he went to the cross. Um, He says, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. What a glorious thing that he has done. It's not about my church, your church. Yeah, there are lousy churches out there and there are good churches out there. But it's not about that. It's not about, and you know, it's really important that we as Christians have a worldview, not a worldly view, but a worldview of the body of Christ, that we see it as being a lot bigger than Calvary Chapel Newburgh, that we see that God is moving on this planet in significant ways. Looking forward to our Revelation study because we'll see that and have a broader view. And that's part of the point is because we are living in the last days. I mean, it's, the clock is ticking towards midnight. I really am convinced of that more than any other time in history. We are at the end of the age and we need to be informed. And that's the purpose in bringing the study at this time. Verse 17, Jesus says, Therefore my father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself, and I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. That is crazy. No, I'm not saying Jesus is crazy. I'm saying that's a crazy thought. 
these guys standing there, this guy, I mean, he's telling them they are not trusting the fact that he is Messiah. He has stated over and over again, and they keep pushing back on that. And he says, look, I have the, I have the ability to lay my life down, and I have the ability to take it back up. This would be radical in these guys hearing. It, they would like, what is he talking about? Uh, he says, I'm doing this willingly. There is not one person that could have taken him to the cross without him allowing it. He was saying, I came for a purpose. I'm the good shepherd. I love you. I'm going to go to that cross for you. And these guys, these false teachers, these thieves and robbers that all they care about is their own stuff. I'm not here about that. And they're going to die in their sin. He says that in the previous chapter. But you, you, I'm going to go and I'm going to lay my life down and I'll take it back up again so that you can have a relationship, so that you can have full-blown access to the Father. What a great statement this is. Verse 19, Therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. So what else is new? <laughs> As I mentioned when we got started, he is causing division on purpose. He's forcing them to make up their minds. But you know, that's what a door does. He's saying, okay, here's the door. You're on this side of the door, in the sheepfold. Then you can come and go, total freedom. Or you're on this side of the door. You're standing outside, essentially throwing rocks at the, <laughs> at the sheepfold. Which is it? And that's part of his statement. I am the door. He's there to not just keep those guys out. He's going to prevent them from being able to come in and to sow bad stuff. But he also protects those who are on the inside. That's what a good shepherd does. There are people on one side of it and on the other side of it. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, hell exists. It's a real place. God doesn't send anyone to hell. They choose to stay outside, to not walk through the door. Sobering. Verse 20, and many of them said, he has a demon and he's mad. Why do you listen to him? I think about that. We've seen these, these lame statements that the religious leaders keep coming up with, throwing back at him things that make absolutely no sense at all, that there is no grounding in truth or reality, and yet he continues forward. He has a demon. Again, blasphemy. That's a blasphemous statement. These guys are making up their mind. We see which side they're falling on. And others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? In essence, these guys knew there was only one who could open blind eyes. And they're the ones who received him. They were the ones who would come to faith. They were the ones whose lives would end up in worship before the Lord, before our King. So we see here a story that Jesus tells, and then he unpacks it himself, uh, of a shepherd uh, who's not only the door to the sheep, but he's the good shepherd. He's the one with whom we have to do. He's the one that protects us. He's the one that guides us. He's the one that illuminates truth to us, gives us good food. 
one of the things I was studying about sheep, and part of the responsibility of the shepherd is to look and to see if there's any poisonous, poisonous plants out there where they're going to be pasturing their sheep. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot of poison plants out there these days. And part of the job of any shepherd is to guide the sheep to good food. There's a lot of bad food out there. And that's why we stand on the word of God here. We stand on his truth, on the reality of what he puts forth. We're not making things up. We're not adding to. We simply want to worship him in spirit and truth. And he seeks that in our lives. What a great and wonderful shepherd king we serve. He is a shepherd, and yet he's also the king. And, and the king, I mean, it, to, to look at a king who acts like a shepherd is, is a very significant thing because kings acted like kings. We talked about Antiochus and what a creep he was. But I mean, power hungry, he's not. He actually is a servant. He, he's the one that he goes low to lift up his people. He says, I'm going to lay down my life. And that is the king. That's our king. That's his character. That's his nature is that of a servant, of that of coming up underneath and lifting us up, going to that cross. If I was the only person or you were the only person who was ever born, he still would have done it. That's the kind of love that our king has because he has the heart of a shepherd. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, for a brief look at this concept of sheep and shepherd. And, and Lord, we, we praise you that you do concern yourself with the details of our lives, that you do call upon us and that we do hear your voice, those of us that know you. And, and if there is anyone in here that doubts that, then I pray, Father, that you would just either give them the assurance of their salvation or let that be a choice they make for the first time. We love you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that you would drive it deeply into our hearts as our desire is to know you better, to not just simply in our prayer life go down the list, but to spend time with you, to set aside time, to have fellowship with you. That's why we were created. We yield to the working of your spirit this morning. We yield to you, Lord. We love you and we praise you. Thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.